All right, let's get started. Let's pray. Start. God, we thank you for tonight. I, I pray that as we, uh, as we go through <coughs> the rest of Genesis 21 and uh, make that transition into 22, uh, God, I pray that you would um, encourage us. I pray that the scriptures would do what you designed them to do as you outlined in Romans uh, 15, that uh, everything that was written in those former days was, writ- was written for our encouragement, that we would um, have hope uh, through the encouragement and endurance of the scriptures. And so uh, I pray that tonight our hope would be strengthened. I pray that our, uh, our eyes and our hearts would be focused rightly. And I pray that we would learn as we look at uh, Abraham in a situation that's a, a tough situation um, and how he lives as a child of the promise. Lord, we thank you for tonight. We pray that you would guide our time, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in Genesis 21, but before we turn there, kind of recap. Last week we talked about what it means to be children of the promise, and we, we've looked at the difference between children of the flesh and children of the promise, and we looked at the fact that children of the promise are fueled by the promises of God, so it's necessary that we're familiar with the promises of God. Uh, so uh, a little recapping, what is the big little phrase that we've been looking at for the last few weeks. It's got huge significance. That little phrase, through Yes, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And uh, in looking at that phrase, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, we saw that Isaac was a child of the promise. Ishmael was a child of the flesh, um, but Isaac was a child of the promise. Isaac was the one who uh, was bestowed, uh, it was bestowed upon him the promise of God uh, as the covenant to um, multiply the people of Abraham uh, for the purpose that, that God had set. So um, that's helped us to kind of lead into what it means to be children of the promise. Now, what do God's promises often reveal? God's promises often reveal something. And it, we talked about it in Isaiah 46. You can turn there if you like. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. In Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, we see this awesome declaration. It says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. One of the connections that we made last week was that uh, one of the things that God reveals in His promises is His purpose. And the promises and the purposes are very, very linked. And so anytime we see God's promises to a people, we see a purpose that he's going to accomplish. And it's not just a a purpose that might be accomplished. According to Isaiah 46, he says, I will accomplish all my purposes. I'm God, and there's no other. There's none like me. And so as we we continue to study tonight, remember that those promises and those purposes are very directly linked. Um, As children of the promise, who are fueled by the promises of God, what were some of the promises that we talked about last week? For those of you who are here, uh, some of the promises that we... Um, encountered last week that should give us hope and encourage us. Or if you weren't here and just know the promises of God, those work as well. Yes. That's huge. (laughs) That's absolutely huge. He'll never leave us, never forsake us. What are some other promises? What are some places we should set our hope? because that's directly linked to promises. What? Things above? Yeah, not only things of the world, 
Uh, there were lots of promises we talked about last night. We'll continue in this. But tonight I wanted to let our time, I'm excited about what we're looking at tonight because it's just this little kind of random story at the end of chapter 21 that has, it's really significant. And so I want our time to be guided by what I just prayed through in Romans 15. In Romans 15, 4, it says, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So the things that we're studying tonight out of the Old Testament, out of Genesis, were written for our instruction. So at some point tonight, we should be instructed uh, by the Word. And it says that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So endurance, encouragement, and hope are all things that we're hoping will kind of guide our time and, and kind of form what we come up with at the end of this study. So turn to Hebrews 6. As we're talking about being children of the promise, what it means to be a child of the promise, a child uh, who can truly trust what God says, a, tr- a child who would, when God asks, asks that question in Genesis, is anything too hard for the Lord, that we would be able to real firmly say, no, nothing is too hard for the Lord, I can trust God wholeheartedly. As children of the promise, we, we get a real uh, encouragement in Hebrews uh, that I want to read before we jump back into Genesis. And it says in Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20, says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, a child of the promise, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, there you see the promise and the purpose linked again, when God desired to, desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the children of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And so this verse gives us a little insight that God desires to convincingly show the children of the promise, those who are sitting here, those who believe in the promises of God, which are perfectly fulfilled in Christ. God desires to show the children of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. And so he desires to show us that in a way that's convincing. The God of the universe, who who created all things created, desires to show us that, desires us to be able to hold close to that, so that we who have fled for refuge might have uh, strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. As we uh, continue tonight, I want you all to think of, in, in thinking about what hope is, think of the opposite of hope being possession. Because we're, we're hoping in a future possession. We're hoping to go to the promised land, which for us is that eternal dwelling in heaven with God. We hope for that. So the opposite of hope is actual possession of that. So as we talk about hope, think of the opposite of hope as possession, and it'll help us to keep things straight tonight. Um, We're going to be looking tonight at an example of how a child of the promise lives in exile outside of the promised land. We're going to be looking at how a child of the promise lives in exile outside of the promised land. So go ahead and turn back over to Genesis 21. We're going to jump in here. Genesis 21, verses 22 through the end of the chapter, which is, I believe, 34. I'm going to read this, and then we'll jump into it. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you and all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, 
But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing to you. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs uh, of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. This little occurrence here, this weird exchange um, and this weird oath that, ha- that takes place here, is I'm really hoping as we study tonight, it's going to help us to see how a child of the promise rightly lives and acts and responds and makes decisions in a land of exile outside of the land that's been promised to them. So if you look at verse 22, we'll just take it a verse at a time. It says, at that time. It starts off saying, at that time. What time is this? What, what do we know about what's been going on, where they're at, this whole people with Abraham, what's happened in his house at that time? What time is it? The context is important here. Isaac has just been weaned, which is a big deal. Why? Yeah, because he lived. He, he lived through it. He was about probably three years old, we figure, at the time of the big party here. And he lived through it. And he was the child of the promise. So it's an even bigger deal. Well, what else is going on at this time? Or at that time? Yes. Yeah, Hagar got the boot with uh, Ishmael. That They've been sent out of the house. Uh, why? What happened? What did Ishmael do? Ha, well, we'll go with that. Yeah, Ishmael laughed uh, mockingly. That was a good mocking laugh at, uh, at, uh, at Isaac at the day of the weaning. It's kind of this teenage thug picking on a little three-year-old, you know, laughing, saying, what's well, the big deal? Ha, and man, Sarah was hacked off. So at that time, these are the things that have happened. Now, even before that, what do we know? What were uh, Abraham and the people of Abraham, what were they, um, where are they coming from? Where were they all gathered before they were in this place? You've got to go all the way back to Genesis. Let's see here. Genesis 12, Genesis 11 and 12. What were they originally? What kind of people were they? Remember that big tower? With all the bad stuff going on and the languages were confused. Where was that? Babylon, yeah. They were Babylonians. And so here they've been... They've been scattered from, from Babylon. Um, they're wandering in this, uh, in this, they're in exile here in the land of the Philistines particularly. And so you see this, they're in exile. They know that there is a promised land, but they have not yet taken possession of the promised land. And they're having to deal rightly in a world, uh, in an environment, in a world, whatever, however you want to say it, where the conditions are not so um, lovely and, and, and easy. 
And so, what time is this? They have been scattered from Babylon. They're wandering for about 60 years in the land of the Philistines as exiles outside of the land that's been promised to the offspring of Abraham. And on top of it all, Abraham has just had to kick his other son out. So this is a hard season. Who is Abimelech? The king of who? Yeah, here Abimelech uh, is the king of the Philistines. And who does he come with? Yeah, what's that guy's name? Phicol. Now this is interesting. Um... What happened the first time Abraham and Abimelech ran into each other? Y'all remember in the previous chapter? Yeah, the whole she's my sister routine. Yeah, Abraham, total bonehead, does not make a good decision, goes in, uh, makes the same mistake he made in Egypt, and tells Abimelech she's my sister. And what happened? How'd that turn out? He came out pretty good. Now, it's not, that doesn't mean that his decision was a good decision. Every time, sometimes we take things in Scripture and we say, well, so-and-so did it, then that must mean it's okay because they're in the Bible. That's not a good way of reasoning. That's like saying, well, well G- Judas betrayed. Oh, that must not be so bad if I betrayed Jesus. No, sometimes people in the Bible who are not God do things that are wrong, and so we should see that they're wrong, but the examples are set in there. But sometimes we look at them and we say, oh, well, they did that, so it must be okay. When Abraham did that, it was not okay. And so they've already had a run, and so tonight's title is Abraham and Abimelech Meet Again. It's kind of this dramatic thing. And, uh, and what's significant about the whole transaction? Who goes to meet who? Does Abraham call Abimelech, say, hey, can you come out here? Can you talk to you? At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, they went to Abraham. This is significant. Abimelech is a king of, a, of the Philistines. Remember a few studies back, we talked about the Philistines, and one of the things that we, we learned about them was that they're a very innovative, forward-thinking people who are horribly brutal. And so they're very powerful. They have lots of power. They're very innovative. However, they're very brutal people. And this is the king of the Philistines here, Abimelech. And so... Uh, it's, this whole thing is significant because the, the instigator of this talk is a king of a powerful, brutal people going to Abraham, who by the worldly standards is really a nobody, but he's blessed by God. And so he's got this little nation of people that are with him, and they've got a lot of stuff, and there's a lot of people, and there's certainly honor and prestige that goes along with the name of Abraham. But it's interesting because by the worldly standard, he, he doesn't have a title. However, we see here... Um, the king of the Philistines here, Abimelech, going out with Phicol. Now, this is also interesting. Have you ever seen the, someone who wants to go talk to someone about something that's a little touchy, and they take their big friend with them? That's what's happening here. Phicol's the commander of the army. So it's, uh, I had a friend in college. Oh, yeah, I'll say it. Um, I had a friend in college. He was my roommate, and he ran an illegal blackjack ring out of the house, and he was a bookie. And he would regularly, and he was about this tall, but he was one wiry guy with the biggest mouth you've ever seen. And he came up to me one time and was like, hey, uh, some guys owe me some money. And I was wondering if you could come with me. Come with you for what? He's like, well, he's going to let me have his TV. <laughs> I was like, who are you? This is like something on a TV show or something. But his point was, you're bigger than me. I want you to come with me because i got some words i got to share. And I want someone bigger behind me. Here, Abimelech takes one of his strong guys, Phicol, 
uh, to go and, 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 uh, and approach Abraham. Now, this, this whole thing's interesting. He says, God is with you in all that you do. God is with you in all that you do. King Abimelech, Phicol, commander of the army, go to Abraham and say, God is with you in all that you do. What particularly are they talking about? What are they referring to? He's with you. How, how do they know God's with him? Specifically, what have they seen God do for Abraham in the last few chapters? Yeah. Destroy well, Sodom and Gomorrah, yeah. Flaming road tar from heaven, yeah. That was a big deal. What else? Yes. Yeah. When he got Lot back, man, they came out. That's probably what you were referring to. Yeah, they, when, they, when they got Lot back and they came out, and these kings and Abraham, this kind of, again, Abraham doesn't have really a title from the worldly standard, yet he's got power because of the promises and the covenant from God. Uh, what else? What else would be an indicator in the life of Abraham that God is with him in all that he does? Money. Yeah, he came out of some of these bonehead decisions somehow with sheep and cattle and oxen and goats and uh, slaves and silver and gold, lots of stuff. Um, what else? He has a son, which is interesting because he's what? Old, very old. So we see that, you know, saying God is with you in all that you do, he could look at Abraham's son and say, man, yeah, God's really with you in all that you do because if God wasn't with you, that son would not be here. Um, in 20, in chapter 20, verses 3 through 7, we see that um, that Abraham was protected by God and called a prophet by God to Abimelech in a dream. So Abimelech is probably remembering that dream that he had saying, oh man, in that dream I heard the voice of God saying, remember what he said when he showed up in the dream? You're a dead man. You're a dead man. The voice of God in a dream. You're a dead man. Terrifying. And, and here he's probably remembering that God protected uh, Abraham and called Abraham a prophet to Abimelech in a dream. God also closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah. These are all things that Abimelech has observed. Um, and then Calvin observes, Abraham was a man deserving of reverence. The number of servants in his house seemed like a little nation, and there is no doubt that his virtues would acquire for him great dignity. So here we see this king going and saying, God is with you in all that you do. And then in verse 23, in beginning with such nice, neutral words towards Abraham, what does Abimelech reveal in verse 23 about his thoughts, his real thoughts towards Abraham? What does he ask of him? Okay. Even more specifically. Don't lie to me. Don't deal falsely with me. Why, why would you go to someone and tell them that? Yeah, it's happened before, and he's suspect of, of what's going on here with Abraham, and he's saying, uh, God is with you in all that you do. This seems real nice. It seems like a cordial you know, greeting, but then he says, um, do not uh, now therefore swear to me here by God, who's with you in all that you do, that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. So he's saying, hey, remember how nice I've been to you. Remember, you sinned against the king, and then you were given a home in his kingdom. And, and you sinned against the king, you were given a home in his kingdom. And not only that, but I declared you innocent, and your name was vindicated. So remember that, because I see that God's with you in all that you do. Now, it's interesting because here, 
all of the things that have previously been listed to describe how God is uh, with Abraham and all that he does, all those things that we listed before, the closing of the wombs and the protection and the appearing to Abimelech in a dream and the kings coming out and all those things and the, the armies being one, uh, though, Abe's power is, though Abraham's power is from God, Abimelech suspects his power. Why is this? God is with you in all that you do. However, I suspect your power. Why does King Abimelech suspect his power? The answer is because he doesn't care about God's plan. He doesn't care about what God's doing. Picture this. The king, Abimelech, is coming out and saying, God is with you in all that you do. Essentially, I don't care about what God's doing. We don't have any indication here that Abimelech wants to drop everything or or use his, his power and his kingdom for the glory of God. All we have here is that there is power on the side of Abraham because of the way that God has dealt with him. God has been with him in everything that he does. And so here Abimelech comes out and says, God is with you in everything that you do. However, I don't care about what God's doing. I don't care about God's plan, mainly because I'm a king, I've got my kingdom, and I'm going to do everything I can to continue to make my own name great. He doesn't say anything about, tell me more about God. I want to learn more about God. We just see he's saying, don't deal falsely with me. Don't lie to me, and don't deal falsely with my descendants. He doesn't care about God or God's plan. So it's interesting because remember, as we're looking at this interaction and trying to learn from it, we've got a guy who has the covenant and the promises of God and a guy who does not give a rip about God's plan. So there's these two guys. They're having to make good decisions and deal and live with each other in the same way that as we in our lives sometimes we'll engage others who love the Lord um, in the same way that we're called to love the Lord and then we'll engage others in a way, maybe in a business transaction, maybe in a social interaction, that don't care about God's plan. And there's a right way to deal here and to, to speak. This also shows the difference that we saw in, in Genesis 12. This shows the difference between God making a, man's na- a man name, God making a man's name great and a man trying to make his own name great. You all remember that? We saw in Genesis 12 that sometimes uh, God will make a certain man's name great so that that man can point to God. So that that man and all that he does can point to God and say, God is great. And so... There's some people, I don't want to know, I don't want anyone to know who I am, I don't want anyone to know my name. There are some people that God will set apart and make their name great. And it's very different than like a king here who's trying to make his own name great. And so there's, we see this dynamic and this, different here, uh, this difference. And again, Calvin observes here, he says, We may, however, learn from the example of Abraham, I, I love this, If at any time the gifts of God excite the enmity of the men of this world against us, to conduct ourselves with such moderation that they may find nothing amiss in us. Notice here, the king doesn't bring any charges against Abraham. He's the king. He could make something up if he wants. But he sees the way that Abraham is living, and he sees the way that God is with Abraham and all that he does. And so he comes to Abraham and he says, I see that God's with you in all that you do. Don't deal falsely with me. But he doesn't bring a charge against him. Abraham has lived in such a way that the king of the place, I mean, he could have come in and said, you're wasting the resources. You're using too much land. Your cattle are eating too much. Your people are unruly. Abraham was leading and living in, in moderation here. Uh, he, he was living in such a way that there could be no charge brought against him. Abimelech just wants his words that Abraham will not lie or deal falsely with him and his people and his future generations. 
And this also shows that Abimelech does not see the lineage of Abraham disappearing anytime soon. It's interesting because Abimelech's saying, don't deal falsely with me or my kids or my grandkids or my great-grandkids. And he's, he has this indication here that I see, it, Abraham, that God's with you in all that you do, and you're probably not going to go away anytime soon. Abraham has lived in a way here that we can really learn from him and that he's living with mo- in moderation. Uh, moderation, I, I want to read a few verses to get us all thinking the same way. Turn to Psalm 52.7. A lot of times, the decisions we make about the way we live can be just daily, daily, daily affected by culture so much that we forget what we're called to uh, as, as children of the promise who are designed for God's glory. And so I want to read a few of these verses. In Psalm 52, 7, remember he, in Hebrews, God was trying to comfort his children who are seeking refuge from the world, seeking refuge in Christ, uh, particularly there. And we're seeing this, these children of the promise are, are children of refuge. And, and here in Psalm 52, 7, it says, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Our refuge is God. Our redemption is God. And, and here he's comforting us, and there's a connection there to Hebrews 6. Turn to um, Philippians 4. We're just going to hit a few of these verses. So our, our, uh, our refuge is not in our riches. That, that was the point there. And then in uh, Philippians 4, verses 10 through 12, Paul says, I, have, uh, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And listen to this, this is key. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty. There is a secret of facing plenty, and the secret of, of facing hunger abundance and need i can do all things through him who strengthens me we see paul saying whether there's a lot whether there's a little my contentment is not encompassed in whether i have a lot or whether i have a little it's it's in christ and so here he says i know how to abound um i know how to abound i know how to be brought low uh, because i've learned in whatever situation i am to be content contentment contentment goes along with living in moderation Moderation is something that will occur in our lives when we're truly, uh, we're truly satisfied with Christ. And we can say we're content, whether we're brought high, whether we're brought low, our contentment doesn't go out the window with either of them because our contentment is in Christ. Turn to 1 Timothy 6. First Timothy 6, verses 6 through 11. And I'm wanting us to see this link between contentment and, and moderation. Because our culture, we're not a, a moderate culture. We're, we're, there's a huge economic downfall right now because we're not moderate people. We, we have overextended, we've bitten off more than we can chew, and there's a huge economic downfall right now. And it says here in, in 1 Timothy 6, 6-11, through 11, 
It says, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Can any of us really say that? Food and clothing. If we have food, if we have clothing, with these we will be content. Truly content. Now we're going to talk more in a minute about the details of what it means to actually be content. But truly content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, the love of money, is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Uh, Moderation. Um, Christians should never eagerly anticipate that day when God's gifts are so abundant that they can just throw moderation out the window. Let me say that again. This is really, really important. Christian people, followers of God, children of the promise, whose hope is set on the things above, should never eagerly anticipate that day when God's blessings are so abundant in our life that we can just take moderation and toss it out the window. That's not our aim. But as I have looked at the way I've lived and struggled with things today, and as I've talked to friends Uh, who make different decisions financially or with possessions or where they spend their time, I know that there are a lot of Christian people who are actually working towards that goal. They go to work and they get a paycheck, they put money in savings or they put money in investments or retirement or whatever in hope of that one day where God's blessings are so abundant that we can just throw moderation out the window. And we're never called to that. We're called to a life of moderation. And here Abraham so embodies that. He has got power. He's got prestige that goes along with that. He has promises and covenants from God, yet he lives in such a way that the king of that land, who has some beef with Abraham a little bit, at least, can't even bring a charge against him because he's living so moderately. We should be able to, and this is so hard because I don't do this, so I'm teaching on something that I'm, I'm desperately needing work on, is embracing a life of moderation, never hoping to one day just be able to get just that next little thing, whether the car or the house or the investment, whatever it is. Use, be good stewards. That's what Abraham's doing here. He's being a good steward. But he is not eagerly anticipating that day when God's blessings are so abundant that he can toss moderation out the window. And this produces in him staying power and steadfastness. Now verse 24 is, is, is pretty interesting. How does Abraham respond in verse 24? Going back to Genesis 21. I will swear. It's interesting because Abraham, who, who's on God's team here? Abraham. Yet Abraham's saying, I will swear. I will do that, King Abimelech. Remember Romans 13 that came up in a sermon a few weeks ago. Romans 13 says to submit to the governing authority, showing respect and honor. And to put it simply, that's what Abraham is doing here. He's doing what it takes to, to live rightly in the world, to be upright in his dealings, and he's showing respect and honor to a guy who has authority because he knows that if God didn't want that guy to have authority, the guy wouldn't have authority. And so he's showing that respect and honor. Okay, the following verses that we're looking at, I'm really hoping that these following verses 
uh, verses 25 through the rest of the chapter, will help us in doing away with any silly misconceptions about how the life of a Christian should be. The life of a child of the promise, the life of a follower of God should be. There's many misconceptions. We often think that our faith is a sort of of get-out-of-jail-free card. We do it a lot. We think our faith is a get-out-of-jail-free card, as though we shouldn't be punished for doing something wrong because we're good Christian people. For instance, I'll give you an example. I'm sure no one in here has ever done it. Where you get pulled over for speeding, and you say, I'm on the way to a Bible study. I love the Lord. As though, because you're a Christian, I I should be exempt because I'm generally a good Christian person. Get out of jail free card kind of thinking. We, We... that's a misconception of the way that our life should be. Uh, on my way to a Bible study or on my way to, to church or on my way to help the needy or the poor. We, give the, we have a number of different things. That can happen. Or we, we think we have a misconception that God would keep other mean people from doing wrong to us. That all those mean people in the world, that because I'm a child of God, that God would just keep them from doing mean things to me and I could live in my uh, flowery beds of ease. I haven't heard that phrase in a while. Yeah, just jumped up in there. Um, uh, Abraham here is surrounded by people who view him as a foreigner with lesser rights and have no problem seizing a well, likely by force, that was dug by his own labor and ingenuity. That's Abraham's situation. I was trying to think of how do you seize a well? It's a, I mean, it's a well. It's like seizing someone's yard. I, I, the really only thing I can come up with is it must have been by force. It must have been this well's ours. And Abraham had the decision... To either say, okay, in God's time we'll deal with this, or, you know, whistle and bring the boys in and and start a war over this well. We even see moderation in Abraham's response to them seizing the well. You don't just steal a well like you steal a wallet. It must have been by force. And Abraham had to make a decision at some point to say, I dug that well, that's my own labor and my own ingenuity, and I could whoop you because I'm Abraham, I'm Father Abraham, um, I have many sons that can whoop you, or, or I'll let this happen in God's time. And it's interesting that he didn't, he didn't, he didn't uh, seek to, uh, to fight them in that. Um, it was dug by his own labor and his own ingenuity. It is a misconception, this, this misconception of the life of a Christian, that bad people won't do bad things to us, and that we should have a get-out-of-jail-free card because we're good Christian people, that leads us to ask silly, silly um, I have the word S-T-U-P-I-D in my notes, but my daughter's in the back, and we don't say that word. We say silly. So we have silly questions like, why do bad people, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? We're not good people. We're wicked. God redeems wicked people. He came to save sinners. He came for the sick. So uh, that, that kind of questions, we're going to take Abraham's lead in how to live as children of the promise in exile outside of the promised land, but ask, why do we care? Why do we care about how to live in exile? And the only way that we can say, yes, we care about how to live in exile is if we understand that we are in exile. Everyone in this room is in exile right now because where's our promised land? Heaven. Are we there yet? No. Have we taken possession of the hope? No. It's still hope. Do we have perfect sight of the things that are going to come? No, because we need faith. The opposite of faith is sight. The opposite of hope is possession. We're not there yet. Um, 1 Peter 1.17 says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. It's a word to us. We're in our exile. And in 2 Corinthians 5.8-10 it says, Yes, uh, 
We are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord in the promised land. But whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We're in exile right now, and while we're in exile, we have a responsibility that our aim, as it says here, is to please God. Abraham is living that way. He's giving us an example. He's in exile, and his aim is to please God, not just to get the well that he thinks he needs. He may need it, but he didn't war there, not just to put Abimelech in his place necessarily, not just to make a name for himself. His aim is to please God, and so as we're in exile, our aim is to please God. Now go back to Genesis 21, verses 25 through 26. It says, When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servant had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing to you. You did not tell me, so I have not heard of it until this day. What have we already learned about the importance of water in this region? Remember Ishmael curled up under the bush? How old was he? teenager. He wasn't like a little baby. He wasn't like Moses being put in a basket. Ishmael being put under a bush. This is like a 16-year-old or 17-year-old young man, man-child, whatever, being put under this bush because he's out of water. And you see Hagar with her head down, crying out, not necessarily to God because God said he heard the voice of the, of the boy, but she's crying out. Why? Because there's no water. And if there's no water, they die. To take someone's well is to essentially make an attempt on their life. Water's important for a big group of people. That big group of people is rendered helpless and and unable to do what they need to do if there's no water. So the importance of water has already been uh, made known. Now here's, here's something that I want us to see. Abraham has an affliction. This is an affliction. This is a problem. That's my well. I dug it, my labor, my ingenuity, and it's been taken from me. And given the chance to make an appeal to the king, he takes it. And that's okay. He takes it. Here it says... Again, remember Abraham, who doesn't necessarily have a title according to these worldly standards. He says he reproved Abimelech about a well of water that, Ab- that Abimelech's servants had seized. He takes the opportunity. Jeremiah Burroughs, in a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, phenomenal book, he speaks of this. He's explaining that, um, that there is Christian contentment is this quiet, gracious frame of spirit that truly believes that God is always in control. The book has so many details about how this has played out in the life of a believer. But one thing that he says, he says, I would add this quiet, gracious frame of spirit, true contentment, true moderate living, true trust in God, is not opposed to all lawful seeking for help in different circumstances, nor to endeavoring simply to be delivered out of the present affliction by, lawful, by use of lawful means. Here, Abraham has an opportunity right here in Abimelech. It was Abimelech's servants that stole the well. Abraham has an opportunity, hey, that's my well, and your servants took it. He has this opportunity. Um, Using the lawful means to escape affliction is not discontentment. Um, If someone walks into my house at 6 o'clock, three nights in a row, they walk into 6 o'clock and they punch me in the face, and they walk out, I'm thinking, okay, that's weird. They walk in the next night at 6 o'clock, punch me in the face, then the third night they come in and they punch me in the face, 6 o'clock, at some point I can say, okay, I'm going to get a restraining order on that person because they're punching me in the face at 6 o'clock every night. I can use a lawful means to escape the affliction of getting punched in the face. That doesn't mean that you're a discontent sissy who's not okay with what God has for you. Now, you could sit there and say, 
Well, if God wants them to hit me in the face again, that's fine. God put a law in place that allows you to say restraining order. Stop it. And so I'm using a very silly example to show how there's a law, there's a king, there's authority, and he's put Abraham in a place to say, Abimelech, that's my well, and your servant seized it. And so he, he, uh, he uses lawful means to be delivered out of the present affliction. Now, interestingly, Burroughs goes on to say, in talking about what contentment is, this content life, this life of moderation, he goes on to say, and I'll just share a little snippet here in hopes that y'all will read the book. He goes on to say that true contentment is opposed to some things. It's not opposed to seeking lawful means to escape an affliction, but it is opposed to murmuring, repining at the hand of God, vexing, fretting, a tumultuousness of spirit, an unsettled and unstable spirit, distracting, heart-consuming cares, sinking discouragements, sinful shiftings and shirkings to get relief and help, and desperate risings of the heart against God by way of rebellion. That's not contentment. That's not moderation. That's not trusting God. And interestingly, that's what we saw in Hagar and Ishmael. This broken, shattered existence as they're crying out. There's no water, only for God to say, lift up your eyes. There's a well right here. We see the difference drawn out there. Now, verses 27 through 32. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of the army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Did Abimelech require payment? Yes or no? No. He didn't require payment. He didn't say, all right, well, uh, if you want the well, it's going to be seven new lambs, a mule and a donkey, or whatever he says here. Um, he, this reiterates, Abimelech doesn't require the payment. The children of the promise don't hold too tightly to the things of this world, but should always be ready to pay whatever is required to make sure that their dealings are in accordance with the purity and upright living to which they have been called. What I'm saying is that we've been called to upright living, we've been called to being above and beyond reproach, and we should be willing, without grumbling, at whatever time, be willing to pay whatever's necessary to make sure it's clear that we want to be, um, we want to live according to that call which has been placed in our lives by God. Uh, interestingly, at first, I thought Abraham was not practicing good stewardship. It's like, Abraham, you're wasting sheep and oxen. You lambs, why are you wasting them? I'm thinking, Abimelech didn't ask for that. That would be like a plumber coming into my house, fixing my sink, and me saying, all right, here's $400, thanks. What if the plumber would have only charged 100 Oh, man, I wasted $300. The point here is that Abraham, is, his hope is not in the, the, the physical things. He's doing whatever it takes. He's making a public statement. Hey, look, here, uh, here, take this. I dug the well. It's my ingenuity that's getting water out of the well. But you know what? Here, take this. I want to make a covenant. I want to be very public that I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make sure everyone knows I'm following God, not anyone else. And I'm in this for God's purposes, not my own. He could have been a cheapskate. He could have been like, I'm not giving you anything. No, no, I dug it. I dug the well. And people would have walked away from there saying, oh, yeah, he's He's, he's, he's a little shifty. Don't touch his well. Don't touch that guy's well. 
he, he's doing whatever he can to make it clear that he is doing this for the Lord. Uh, sometimes we're called to give more than what our fellow man requires. This is a vague, um, it's not a very cultural thing for us. Sometimes we're called to give more than what our fellow man requires. And what I'm saying is that our standard is not set by man. Our standard is set by God. And so th- if God is with Abraham and all that he does, I believe that Abraham sat and said, okay, God, what do I do here? And God said, get the sheep, get the oxen, and get seven ewe lambs and give them to him. God's with him in all that he does. So rather than Abraham saying, what's the minimum requirement from this guy? He says, God what? Because God's with him in all that he does. And this is what God requires. And we don't see Abraham going, oh God, seven? How about three? He didn't even ask for one. He didn't even ask for anything. Yeah, how about three? We don't see that. We see him willingly, open-handed, holding loose to the things of the world so as to make this very clear. Um, the third thing is, is Abraham, who has lots of power, prestige, riches, look what he's fighting for. He's showing care for the people. He's not trying to get like the upgrade package on a donkey or something. He, he's trying to, he, here he's, he's, he's showing care for the people, not just himself. He's not being selfish and self-centered and self-serving. He's trying to get water for the people. His dealings are so that he is not only thinking of himself, but he's saying, I've got this, I've got responsibility, I've got all these things, I'm going to give this because that well's important for my people. He's willing to give whatever it takes for the good of his people here. And it sets a really great example for us. Now verses 33 through 34 say, uh, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Has anyone here ever planted a tree? Like, let me see your hand if you've planted a tree. Really? I've never planted a tree. I've never planted a tree. I've often thought I would love a huge oak tree in my front yard that would give shade and lower our bills and provide a nice sitting area. But why have I never planted an oak tree? I probably ain't going to be around to that house for the time the oak tree grows. I've got plans. I'm going to do some other stuff maybe. You know, what, how... 20, 34, I don't know how long it takes an oak tree to get big enough to provide shade for a house. So I've never said, all right, I'm going to plant a tree. Planting a tree, um, and I'm not trying to be uh, cute with words, it's a sign of putting down roots. That might be where we get the phrase, I don't know. But it's a sign of putting down roots. After the hardships of putting his son out of the house, having his well stolen, likely by force, Abraham here is given by God, who's with him in all that he does, a short season of rest. He's still a sojourner in, in a land of exile, but he's given a season of rest. He's, he has a well. He's planted a tree. It's kind of like God saying, for now, don't worry about moving the tents. You've got a well here. Plant a tree, and it's fine. The, uh, the point here is that when God gives you a season of rest, make the most of it. I hope this is encouraging. Abraham has lots of ups and downs. I'm not going to mention what he's called to do in the next chapter. Uh, because it's, it's the whole opposite end of the spectrum, but he has this window, this season of rest. And if God blesses you with a window of rest, a season of rest, enjoy it. Make the most of it. Ben talked about when he was on uh, sabbatical, he was going to write a book and he was going to do all this stuff, and then at some point he was like, sabbatical, rest. And his exact words were he rested his tail off, and that's good. He had this window, this opportunity that God had given to him to rest. Here we see the same thing with Abraham. He's given at least a short season of rest, though he's still a sojourner. 
Make the most of that if God gives it to you. Enjoy not having to move your tent. Enjoy the fresh water from the well that you've been given ownership over. Enjoy time teaching and discipling your little Isaacs, your children. If you have time, if God's given you, enjoy that time where you get to disciple and lead and teach and love your kids, your little Isaacs. Plant a tree if you want. If you have a season of rest, plant a tree. It was in uh, Genesis 2 says, And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight. God made trees pleasing to the sight. When's the last time you looked at a tree and said, That pleases me in my sight? He did. He, did. he made trees pleasing to the sight. So if you would like, do all these things. Rest. If God gives you a season of rest and really enjoy it. The difference is, what's your expectation in life? Can you enjoy a season of rest? Or do you expect some life of rest? Do you have that silly notion where you get the get out of jail free card, you look forward to the day when God's blessed you so abundantly that you get to kick moderation out the window and just do whatever you want? Are you so eagerly anticipating a life of rest that you can't enjoy a season of rest? God gives us seasons of rest. He does not call us to a life of rest. And in fact, the rest that we, we, uh, we experience here, we're called to strive to enter uh, that rest. So what's your expectation? If you think that you deserve an entire life of rest and no problems and easy going and get out of jail free card and, and get to live uh, in the opposite of moderation, um, you're likely the kind of person uh, who doesn't know how to enjoy a vacation because it'll be over soon. I, I'm sharing that because I've experienced that. Where you go on vacation and you're like, oh, man, like seven days and this is over. It's a vacation. Enjoy it. Make the most of it. Maybe it's just a weekend. Maybe it's just an afternoon with your spouse or your kids. Maybe it's just a little short season, a little moment. Enjoy it and make the most of it. And know that God gives us seasons of rest, but he doesn't call us to this life of rest. We'll have eternal rest, eternally, in, in, perfect, uh, in a perfect scenario in our promised land, but we haven't taken possession of it. We're still hoping in that. So as we're hoping in that, we're given seasons of rest. And I encourage you all to make the absolute most of them. Don't not enjoy a time with your spouse or your kids at night because you know that tomorrow is going to be a hard day at work. Make the most of it if God gives you that. Um, this is very personal. I, I encourage you all to, uh, generally, uh, myself and a lot of people that I'm surrounded by were not good at, at enjoying a season of rest. And I, I don't want us to be... Um, idle people, because scripture speaks very firmly against being idle. It says a little folding of the hands, a little idle rest, and calamity and tragedy, everything blows up. Pay attention to what you're doing. Be good stewards of your time. But if God gives you a season of rest, make the most of it. He did that with Abraham here, and I think it's a really cool example. And he planted a tamarisk tree. I, I, I was, none of the commentaries that I was studying said anything about a tamarisk tree, and it was driving me nuts. Because I'm like, it says tamarisk tree. Surely there's something to that. So, being the scholar that I am, I Wikipedia'd Tamarisk Tree, and, and I'm going to read to you specifically just what came up on Wikipedia for the Tamarisk Tree, and, uh, and it'll, be, it'll be quick. This is what we'll close with, but I think it's so cool that God gives us these little things that are such an encouragement. Here is the season with Abraham. He's, he's had a hard season, and now he's coming into this little season of rest, and he plants his Tamarisk Tree, and, uh, and it's interesting. I was just, this is right off the website. It says, each flower can produce thousands of tiny seeds. Abraham, that's pretty cool that God would make the tree that he plants a reminder, an indicator as you look at it, and it's pleasing to the sight because that's one of the reasons God made it, that that tree in particular has flowers that have thousands of tiny seeds per flower on the tree, and there's lots of flowers on the tree. 
I'm thinking of, you know, as numerous as the stars, so shall your offspring be. And this beautiful picture of that. Number two, seedlings require extended periods of soil saturation for establishment. None of us have started on that journey of following the Lord and just immediately everything's great. Man, we're set in, we've got deep roots. There's extended periods of time. It shows the inefficiency of ministry in our three-mile-an-hour walk. They're fire-adapted. Anybody? They're fire-adapted. The comfort, fire-adapted. Christians are fire-adapted. That's good. Um, th- there's far more to following God than just the hell insurance thing. Uh, however, it's interesting that these are fire-adapted. The reason that they're fire-adapted is that they have long, deep tap roots and are able to limit competition from other plants by taking up salt and water from deep in the ground. So they have this steadfastness uh, because of their deep roots. We're not people who have shallow roots. Remember, when we, as people of the promise, we can trace our roots back and those promises back all the way to Isaac, all the way to Abraham, and back to God who made the promise. Remember, the point is we are people of, of, of the promise, children of the promise, who are all about the God of the promise, not just his means or anything like that, but we're about the God of the promise. So it's interesting here that their resiliency, their ability to stand up to the Abimelechs and, and the people, who, the servants who took the well, it, they have staying power and steadfastness because of their deep roots here. And uh, my favorite one, uh, which is not very encouraging to end on, but we will end on it, is that the tamarisk trees are propagated. That means they're, they're increased and they spread and they grow by cutting and striking. So the growth and the spreading and the propagating of these trees occurs by cutting them and striking them, which for Christian people, it's not much different. A lot of times our growth, our steadfastness comes through trial. Um, what we were talking about in, in uh, John 14, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God. Um, why would their hearts be troubled? There is trouble in life. There are hard seasons. And it's interesting that through that cutting, that striking, uh, that that's how we are increased, how we spread, how our faith is made known to a very lost world. Um, while we are children of the promise, we have not yet entered into possession of all of these promises. We hope in them, but we have not entered into possession of them. It's kind of like you can buy a car, but you have maybe not yet taken possession of that car. You buy it online, but you haven't taken possession of it. There's a difference here. Christ has come, and the kingdom of God has begun to be ushered in, but it's not completely ushered in yet. He will come again. And so we're in this, a little bit of an in-between time here where we have not entered into possession of all the promises. However, we have the promises. Sure, they are sure. But our hope is in the promises. Our hope is in this eternal uh, blessing. Our eternity is sure in Christ, but now we're sojourners uh, living in exile outside of the promised land. So moderation, trust in God, and willing to give whatever is needed uh, for the good of the people as well. So lots of points here to, uh, to discuss and look over. Are there any questions or comments or thoughts? Yeah? Yes. That's rich. I wish I would have thought about that earlier. It's a really good connection. Your thoughts or verses or questions? All right, we all got this. That's good. Yeah, Let, let's go ahead and pray to that end that we would uh, see the example that Abraham set and, and, and follow it. Uh, because we're not focusing on Abraham, we're not focusing on the promises, but we're focusing on the God of the promises. Let's pray. God, your word is um, so rich. God, this little bitty section of scripture where Abraham has a weird conversation with Abimelech and Phicol, 
and just all the things that you're, you teach us through that about uh, living in moderation, being open-handed, um, never grumbling if we're called to maybe give above and beyond what, what even man requires. Man does not set our standard. God, we thank you that you're a God who will never leave us and never forsake us. And so as we hear Abimelech saying to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do, we can hear Abimelech saying the same thing to us. God is with you in all that you do, and my prayer is that we're living accordingly. If you'll never leave us, you'll never forsake us, then we know that as children of the promise, you're with us in all that we do, and so our hope is in these promises that you've given, and I pray that we would be excited about the purposes that are revealed in those promises, and I pray that we would truly hope, we would truly uh, stand firm and, and cling fast to those things that you have shared with us. And I pray that we would be people who are being transformed by the renewal of our minds as we set our minds on the things above. And I pray that as we have maybe our own uh, little encounters like Abraham has had here, that we would not be uh, quick to wage war, uh, whether it's uh, a war of words or something physical. I pray that we would be patient people. I pray that we would pe be people who do not eagerly anticipate throwing moderation out the window because your blessings in our life have been so abundant. But I pray that we would be people who are so fixed on the kingdom, so kingdom-minded, so have such an eternal perspective that as we make our decisions in this world that it's clear that you're with us in all uh, that we do and that all that we do is for your glory and for your honor. We're not a people who are called to try and make our own names great. Uh, we, we are a people who are here before you tonight, uh, particularly humbly submitting and desiring to be used by you for your glory. Lord, I pray that you would guide us in our dealings with our, our workmates, our classmates, our family members, our friends, strangers. Uh, I pray that we would live in such a way uh, that we put your glory on display in everything that we do. Uh, God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. I thank you that every promise is perfectly fulfilled in Christ. And when you made those promises at the beginning of the offspring that would be blessed through Isaac, uh, when, when you said those things to Abraham, that we know that you were talking about Jesus and that it's beautifully, perfectly orchestrated over lots of time, uh, reiterated by lots of prophets, um, shown to us through lots of scripture uh, that um, Christ is our redeemer, that uh, as children of the promise, we, we are hugely blessed because we have access through Christ to the God of the promises. God, we love you, and we thank you for Jesus, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a good night.